0: T minus three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the BizTalk Podcast. We're on this week. A lot of stuff going on this week. It's uh, springtime, I guess, everywhere except uh, Wrigley Field. You see the guys wearing sweatshirts and masks and everything at Wrigley Field? I don't mean masks. I mean, like, ski masks, you know? Um... Fortunately, I think most of the places we got rid of those other masks. <laughs> but yeah, it was really cold in Chicago. I was watching uh, some baseball up there, seeing how cold that was. But you know what's hot? The economy is still hot, not yeah. hot in a good way. There's like too hot to touch a couple things. But we got a bunch of things we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about oil. We're gonna talk about real estate. We're gonna talk about what the Biden administration has just done um, from federal support or not support, depending on what side you're on, for mortgages and mortgage insurance. Big controversy was on that. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, unemployment and a couple things coming up with the recession and some stats that I think you can use, whether you're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, or you're a leader anywhere, I think some of this is you're going to be very applicable for you to use. As usual, we are here with Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, pulling up charts, running clips, watching the chat, all while I talk. So Good morning.
1: Good morning, how are you? How are you doing? Very well. How's, re-
0: how's April so far?
1: Really good. Uh, getting ready for SLS this week, the Sales Leadership Summit with Value Tamen.
0: Valuetainment Sales Leadership Summit, one of the three big conferences that are done during the year for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, people running businesses, maybe somebody just like you or a leader on your team. This is the Sales Leadership Summit. It is dedicated to sales leadership and how you can be driving your team. And right now during a recession, there are people that's going to be here and here. Patrick Bet-David talking about how to build muscle on your sales team at a time where maybe a lot of people are hunkering down, waiting for the economy to turn for easy times or waiting for a recession. Is it going to come or not? Other people here at the Boca Tone Hotel building muscle. If you can't make it and you didn't make it for Sales Leadership Summit, there is still time to be there for Vault. And Vault's going to be a great, great program coming up end of August, early September. You can read all about that, and that's where there's sales leadership, management, and more, and a list of speakers that will be insane (laughs) that I can't even tell you. you got to wait till they're announced, but it will be insane. So if you didn't make it for Sales Leadership Summit, make it to Vault. So all about us, me, the BizDoc, i want to leave you better than I found you, and that is very much the mission of Valuetainment as a whole, bringing you information, education, edification, and a little entertainment along the way. So let's start. Um, so it was very interesting this week. You know, I had a friend call me and asked me. They said, hey, you know, I just saw this stat on Bloomberg and I heard you almost say something. You started to say something on PBD podcast last week about uh, refinery. So as we know, the Biden administration has not been allowing energy companies to drill as much as they want Um New drilling permits are important because exploration finds new um, oil reserves or expands the drilling in an existing known reserve area so they can pull that oil out of the ground and turn it into jet fuel, car fuel, heating oil, gasoline, which is car fuel, all those things they're gonna turn it into. Well, what has happened is during COVID and during the Biden administration, the environmentalists and the Greens have been like, nope, no more drilling. Don't want to drill. We're going to cancel pipelines because we want all of that to force people toward renewables, toward solar, toward wind energy, toward all these other things, Uh, you know, uh, geothermal. So that's what the push is. Okay, and they're like, hey, if we make gas expensive or we don't let them drill, that kind of forces people to invest in other ways. Okay. So here you go. Well, but what it also says is maybe U.S. energy companies, Exxon, Chevron, people like that, maybe they start buying oil from other people because there's two parts to being in the oil business. Drilling it, getting it out of the ground, and selling it once you've turned it into gasoline, jet fuel, and these things. And Is that chart up? Pop the chart up if you would now. Give me a thumbs up when the chart's up. There's you. Okay. Take a look at this. So if you're not going to let them drill, they're going to work on the sell side, which also goes with the refinery side. So take a look at this. And we'd like to thank our, um, our friends here at RBC who put this together. But the global refinery capacity. Look how it dropped in 2021. You go all the way over to the right-hand side and you see refinery capacity fell in 2021, as it says, for the first time in more than 30 years. But, but in 23 to 24, it's going to post the strongest two-year growth since 1977. Wait a minute. What happened in 1997? 1977. I'll tell you what you could do. You could go watch the movie Argo and also study the Jimmy Carter administration where we had the Arab oil embargo. That's not a racist comment. That's what it was called. The Arab nations of OPEC had said, we're not going to be sending oil to the United States. It created gas shortages and things like that. So about that time, they build refineries. In other words, they don't care where they're going to buy it they wanna make sure the refineries on U.S. soil so that they can convert it on U.S. soil. So why are they adding all this refinery capacity? Because they are looking at it from two sides. If I can't drill, I'm gonna refine, and I'll buy it from Venezuela, I'll buy it from other places, but that's what I'm gonna do, and then they're gonna refine it here. So as long as I can get the oil here, You know, whether it comes from North Dakota, they got shale oil here. We have West Texas Intermediate. We have Gulf of Mexico. We have some in Alaska. We had a lot of oil in the United States, and we could be independent if we wanted to drill. But not going to let us drill. Then we're going to build refinery capacity so that we will not be dependent on other people. We can refine it here, and we can go out and buy it. But isn't that interesting? The the strongest two-year growth in 1977 is in... Global net oil refinery capacity. So everybody is looking to do that, especially here in the United States. And believe it or not, I think, and I'll find the exact one, ExxonMobil fired up expansion of Beaumont, Texas. And with 250,000 barrels of extra capacity that they can run in Beaumont, Texas, that is the largest capacity addition in the United States in over 10 years. So you can see what's going on. So uh, if the UN and all these folks think that around the world, what they're doing is pushing green energy, there's part of the uh, energy infrastructures out there that says, hey, a lot of this green stuff isn't here yet. You know, we need lithium. We need a lot of uh, um, to make batteries like for cars that are going to make an electric car. You still got to make the electricity. So you've got energy. Still, fossil fuels being used that way, and then you still need gas and aviation fuel. But I thought it was very interesting. So here's a lesson for us. I wonder how many entrepreneurs look at life this way. In other words, this isn't a big company thing, and it's not just an oil thing. You know, do you read the wider market, and do you remain alert? And give me a couple examples of that. When SVB crashed, Silicon Valley Bank, when they crashed, we saw all sorts of articles. Why would they crash? What happened? Did the VCs put out a bunch of tweets and all these people ran on the bank? Well, yeah, maybe all of that happened in some part and some of it was overblown. But all those stories were going on. Below the surface, you saw a story that it was rumored that in those 48 hours going into that weekend, because remember, I believe this bank died on a friday a Thursday, Friday, and I think we covered that like in a, in a BizDoc podcast here. You had J.P. Morgan bankers telling their friends, and their friends were tweeting, and then the media called J.P. Morgan and, and they, they didn't deny it, but they didn't admit it. But they worked 48 hours, and people were working all night reaching out <clears throat> to small companies funded by venture capital that had just lost their bank and said, hey, you need to make payroll. I can get you a payroll account set up, and I can get it connected to Paychex, ADP, whoever you're using, and I can get you going. Bring your stuff to JP Morgan. We'll help you. Well, some of my money is trapped there. I've only got this much money. That's okay. We'll get the account set up. You move it over here, and let's get your people paid. So what was that? That is an example of what's happening. Why is all this refinery capacity being built? Why is ExxonMobil firing up and doing all these things down in Beaumont, Texas? Because where there's shortages or there's pinches on one side, the capitalist and the entrepreneur says, how can I fix it? How can I be part of the solution? How can I help somebody and do it for my company? And that's exactly what JP Morgan did. So, you know, you look at that, and you say to yourself, where is your company? You may have a small company, and I'll give you an example. You know, a a few years ago, there were these horrible, horrible tornadoes hit Oklahoma. And there were churches and volunteers that were out there trying to clear the streets. But once the streets were cleared and they got electricity restored and the injured people could get to places and homes that were destroyed, you could get insurance adjusters in there. That's all the immediate stuff. Then there was a long bit of cleaning up. And I read about a couple companies that were in Indiana that got their guys together and a couple RVs and said, look, we're going to go down and not only serve the people of Oklahoma, we're going to help our business. So they lived out of RVs and they were clearing driveways and people's property and cutting up all these trees and they weren't gouging them. They were like, here's an opportunity that we can make more this quarter, but let's get RVs, because the hotels were full, so they lived in RVs, and they went down there, and they opportunistically went in there. That's what J.P. Morgan did. J.P. Morgan worked all night, giving people banking services in their hour of need, not gouging them, and that's what those folks did. And that's very much what Exxon is doing. They're not doing this benevolently, they're doing it for themselves, but they look at it and say, wow, a combination of factors out there is creating an opportunity in my industry. If I can't drill, build the refinery. How do you think about it like that? So um, last week um, we uh, interviewed Mary Kick. Of she is this female CEO and founder of Southern Champion, and they make Buzz Balls, which you see them in um, spirit stores or Costco and places. Little. Little round little balls like this, it's a margarita. You just pour it over ice. It's ready to drink, ready to pour. Well, during the, during the peak of COVID, they were fine alcohol. Well, alcohol, gelatin, some few other things, and they could make hand sanitizer, you know, because you feel it's like that jelly that kind of evaporates. It's got alcohol in it and disinfectant, and boom, now you've made hand sanitizer. So she was using her operation to make hand sanitizer, And they gave a lot of it away. Now, why were they doing that? Because in the hour of need, they could do something. And then people remembered her and Southern Champion and said, I remember you. So it could be goodwill for your company, but also can be opportunistic like J.P. Morgan and the landscape companies that went down to Oklahoma and were living out of RVs with their crew, paying their crews overtime, making extra money for their company, not gouging the public, but taking advantage of the situation for it. This only works when you're paying attention and you're prepared and you're what I call head up and looking around versus trapped and head down. And I think that that is a a great lesson for all of us. So when you look around your industry, sometimes people cry about things. Some people moan about things. Do you have a supplier that's crying about something? Is there an opportunity for you maybe to make something that you normally buy? There may not be. But the point is, have the head on and have the eyes up and think about it that way because that's what's going on, you know, with energy and and a lot of other places. But I thought it was very interesting. It's been 10 years since the U.S. has seen that kind of uh, refinery built. So as long as we can get the oil here, they can get it refined. And that's Exxon's way of putting them in position not to be part of a gas shortage, but to ensure there isn't a gas shortage. There you have it. So we move on to... Interest rates and housing. Oh, boy. What a day Friday was. If anybody was paying attention to the news, did you see how everybody freaked out about the Biden administration, what they did? Mm -hmm. So they thought they were going out to announce something really interesting and really good. And instead, it completely backfired on them. Oh, boy. But why are they trying to do it? Number one, the Biden administration is not paying attention to the truth in the housing market. And they were trying to do something to help people, lower income people, buy a house more easy. Well, first, there has to be a house to buy. And let me explain what's about to happen. So there has to be a house to buy. The supply is low. Now, let's look why. Right now, interest rates are high. And with interest rates being higher than they were, you have people are not willing to put their house on the market. Even if you're going to downsize, if you're selling this house with a two and a half, three percent 3% mortgage, now you're going to go to a 6%, maybe 6.5% mortgage right now. And what are the mortgage rates right now? You can look that up real quick. I think we were 6.375 for a 30-year fix for people with good credit right about now. So if you've got one of those mortgage opportunities in front of you, here it is. Hang on. 300000 Actually, 30-year fixed is ticked up. I'm showing um, 700 credit. Move that up to um, 750, up one level, 740. 50. Okay, just a 697, so it's actually up a little bit. Right now, interest rates on a mortgage on a 30-year fix with 20% down is 7%. And I'm looking at this. Are they able to see this right now?
1: They can? We can put Okay, up you can see
0: what's on the screen right now. If you're driving in your car, we are looking at the average rates that are pulled through the industry by Google. We're looking at a 20% down payment on a 30-year fix for a good consumer with 740 credit. It's 7%, 6.97. So why do I want to sell me and the BizDoc babe? Why would we want to sell a house with a 3.5% mortgage and go get one with a 7% mortgage? Why would we do that so we don't put it out? That's a supply problem. Now let's go back and get ready for the other chart. So what's happening is there is a supply problem here in America, and the home prices remain elevated because we pumped a bunch of uh, dollars into the system, a couple of trillion dollars that were got pumped into it, and the value of the assets jumped up, and the supply went down, and the supply going down is going to cause the price to go up anyway. Low supply, prices go up. We were just talking about gasoline. When there's a gas shortage, what does it say at the at the corner? The Shell station says 5.25 for 89, and it goes all the way up to six bucks for 93. And I'm talking about the gasoline octane levels. 89, you know. Um, 87, 89, 93, usually in the United States, or uh, 91. Anyway, that's what you see. Supply is down, price is up. The same thing happened to homes, along with all that money we printed, also caused to go up. So what you have right now is the Biden administration going out and created all this furor. Let me get back to that in a second. But against what backdrop? What was already going on is the interest rates aren't going down, and it looks like the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates a quarter point in about three weeks in the month of May when they have the next Fed meeting. So that means that there's going to be another quarter point, most people think, put onto the federal interest rate, and that from there they may flatten it out. Well, flat is good news. It just means it doesn't go up anymore. That doesn't mean mortgages are going back down to four and a quarter, or four and a half, or five anytime soon. As a matter of fact, you know, it means. And by the way, if you're watching PBD podcast, you know, I like to say, Jay Powell, Jerome Powell is heading upstairs to see the cheerleader one last time for a quarter point. Um, The cheerleader is our economy. Jerome Powell raising rates is pounding the economy, so he's about to head upstairs and pound the cheerleader for another quarter point. But hopefully, the poor cheerleader is going to get the summer off, and the rates are going to be allowed to, to stay flat and stabilize. And then if other economic factors are there, start dropping them down toward the September-October time frame, but they're not going to drop like a rock probably going to be maybe a quarter comes down and then maybe another quarter comes down. So I I don't think we're going to see rates getting back really low till second quarter of next year or about a year from now. So what's going on? Now you can see that's why the house's prices remain elevated. We don't want to put our house on the market because why do I want to sell it? even if I could make money on it, and then turn around and go get a 7% mortgage on a new house, even if I pay less for that house. And by the way, good luck finding a house that would be less. So there's the problem. So there you go. Home prices, and the chart is showing how the home prices are up, but the supply is down. That is more of the problem than mortgage insurance, what the Biden administration was trying to do. The problem is people are not putting houses on the market and new building of homes is not happening as fast as it was in the past because when those homes are built, they're at a higher price and they have a higher price mortgage, so it's tough for people with lower incomes to get into starter homes. So everything in the real estate industry is kind of shaky and kind of frozen a little bit. That's what's going on. So along comes the Biden administration. So I think now we've, we can see home prices are not going to come down until interest rates comes down and supply comes up. So now, what have we got? You know, it, it's really difficult to buy a house right now. You know, the supply that we're talking about, you know what the actual statistics in it? It's, a, it's the lowest since 1999. 1999. AND THAT'S KEEPING PRICES HIGH. THE MEDIAN PRICE FOR A HOME in, IN MARCH, I THINK IT WAS, I'M PRETTY SURE IT WAS LIKE 375, MEDIAN U.S. PRICE, 375. AND THAT WAS ONLY A SLIGHT DIP FROM LIKE 381 A YEAR PRIOR. SO GUESS WHAT? THOSE EXPENSIVE HOME PRICES ARE STAYING THERE AND NO NEW ONES ARE COMING ON. And so. They believe that the inventory crunch is going to continue through the fall and not really alleviate. As a matter of fact, um, one of the senior writers at Bloomberg that's covered real estate, and he usually has a, um, uh, a pretty good, you know, grass on things. Um, he doesn't see an alleviation in supply till the middle of 2024, one year from now, a little more than one year. So home riders don't want to move. Builders can't get things built and are finishing homes under construction faster than they're starting new ones. So they're finishing these faster than they're starting new ones, which means the supply is coming down. We're in a supply crunch. We're in a supply crunch made worse by the fact that interest rates are high. No one's going to put their home on the market to go get something else with a high rate. Meanwhile, the Biden administration jumps in to say, us to the rescue. So... To say all this, it doesn't mean nothing is happening in the home market. There are some markets where prices are starting to drop: San Diego, San Jose, Tucson, a little outside of Phoenix, to name a few markets. It's not going back crazy and, and heating up, but there is some improvement in those markets. So there's some transactions are happening. So the market is bad, but it's not. It's not frozen. There, there are some pockets where there are transactions. Now, the number of transactions that we've seen is down 65% year over year. So for every 100 attraction uh, transactions happening a little over a year ago, now there's 30 to 35. So there is, right, so there is a pulse, but it's really faint. So here comes the Biden. So you may have seen the um, what went on. It was kind of crazy. <clears throat> so the Biden administration announces that they have a thing, and there's um, <clears throat> federal, ho- federal Housing Finance Agency, the FHFA. They are responsible for, you know, uh, programs that the federal government puts together that helps people get loans. There's FHA loans and a, a v- variety of things like that. And what they've said is they are going to normally the... Um, New home buyers with average credit, they have to pay a thing called mortgage insurance, and they are going to reduce the cost of their mortgage insurance on maybe a four hundred thousand dollar house by about sixty bucks a month or about eight hundred bucks for a year. Everybody said, okay, that's interesting, but then they said they were doing it based on FICO credit scores, and that's the credit score that runs from five fifty for really average to eight oh one or whatever it is for just about perfect, and they're saying, well, if you've got a credit score that is somewhat low, then we're going to allow you to save this $800 a year on the mortgage insurance. Now, that's $60 a month. It could be meaningful to people. But they added that, but we're going to, uh, things are going to raise a little bit for the folks that have good credit, and that's where we saw this whole brouhaha just explode. They're going to compensate for the reduction in borrowing for lower-income people that are trying to get into a house by raising it for borrows with higher credit scores. Newsweek put this out in more stark terms, and they said, well, the people with the higher credit scores tend to be white. And I'm going to show you where Newsweek got that wrong. They tried to make this, well, blacks and Hispanics will have this. Whites with the higher scores will have this. So I'm going to go into, say, why making this a racial discussion, how wrong that was, because it wasn't just Newsweek. That was floating around. And the media was kind of playing the race card a little bit with this as well. What it really comes down to is, I don't care what color you are. The government's going to give a discount to people on low, with lower credit and they're going to raise the price for people with higher credit. So it doesn't matter what color you are. If you're, you're, this is not fair. This is the way they're doing it. It's like, really? The argument was, well, when you pay taxes, you pay for welfare programs. Yeah, well, I also pay for national parks and I pay for battleships and I pay for the, the army and I pay for government services that are out there. So don't tell me that this is apples to apples. This is not like you're taking tax money to do it. You are raising the price on people with higher credit scores. And you are lowering the price of people with lower credit scores. And so, and you're doing it in a very unfair way. And that is why everything exploded. So I don't have any solution for you other than to say, you know what? You have to be the master of your own destiny in this world. And as entrepreneurs and people that are that are out there, that are um, working hard and are pushing and are, you know, building up their credit the way they should be, suddenly, now when it's time to buy a house, the federal government's going to charge you more for something. Really? That just seems so discriminatory and unfair. By the way, by the way, if a company did that, you'd have the Department of Commerce saying, you're you are practicing discriminate price discrimination that's wrong you know you can't do that and so sort of interesting that the government's getting away with it doing it this way but you have to be the master of, of your own destiny you have to put yourself in a position that you don't have to rely on a government program to give you a discount or be charged for something you know it, you, this is not helping the middle class buy homes because this part of the middle class with a better credit score has to pay more than this part of the middle class that doesn't have it. That's not to say that the government shouldn't try to help people along the way. And since, if we know anything about FHA and things, there's a lot of government programs tied to home ownership that make it happy. But it's, I think this is just a um, really a, a weekend news cycle. That's not going to stop. I don't think the Biden administration wanted. As a matter of fact, Obama's housing chief over the weekend made the rounds on a couple of the news shows, and he actually was slamming the uh, the fact that it happened. So you know what? The problem is supply and interest rates. People giving them a lower cost of Mortgage insurance doesn't change the interest rate and doesn't magically make a bunch more houses appear. Now, remember I said it was sort of price discrimination and how wrongheaded it was for some of the media to make this about race or culture or, 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 um, you know, your, your origin? Pull up that chart for me, Kellyanne, and let's take a look at the median income of Americans. Give me a thumbs up when they can see it, All right, I'm looking at a chart right now that shows the median household income in the United States by ethnic groups. And this comes out of the U.S. Census Bureau on a study that was completed in 2015. So this goes back about, you know, almost 10 years. However, it still is alive and well today, and after the next census, it's going to be updated. But you know what the highest median income in the U.S., if you want to turn this into a discussion about... Ethnicity and race? Indian Americans, as in India, as in Chennai, Hyderabad, people from those cities coming to the United States, their median income? $100,500. The average for everyone, all citizens, $56,200. You know who is second? FILIPINO-AMERICANS, AND I KNOW SOMETHING ABOUT THIS BECAUSE CALIFORNIA, OXNARD, CALIFORNIA, AND SOUTH CITY, IT'S CALLED, SOUTH SAN FRANCISCO, TREMENDOUS, THRIVING FILIPINO COMMUNITIES. 83,000 MEDIAN HOUSEHOLD INCOME. NEXT, TAIWANESE. YOU KNOW, THE PEOPLE THAT ARE LIVING UNDER THE THREAT OF BEING INVADED BY CHINA AT SOME POINT? 82,000. THIS CHART IS GOING TO BE UP HERE. YOU CAN GO CLIP IT. Tweet it. I tweeted it this morning, but if you're listening in the car, I'll now run down the list some more. Sri Lanka, off the coast, island off the coast of India, 74,600. Japanese Americans, 72,000. <clears> Malaysian Americans, 70,000. Chinese Americans, 69,000. Pakistani Americans, 66,000. General White Caucasians, 60,000. Korean Americans, 59,000. Indonesian Americans, 57,000. Dead average, as I shared, 56,200. That's the average for everybody in the U.S. Bangladesh, Bangladeshis, 50,000. Nepal 43,000 Hispanic Hispanic Americans 43,000 African Americans 35,000 so this is not to say that there's not work to be done but if you're going to make this an ethnic discussion you know about oh you're you're helping your 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 the white people are paying for it and the the blacks and the Hispanics are benefiting from it, that was so wrongheaded of the media to say that because the richness of the tapestry of America and the citizenships are here that if you are from India and Asia, they tend to, to be... Really driven in terms of work ethic and entrepreneurship and small business oriented, the areas I mentioned, Oxnard, California, and South City, San Francisco, it is not just a thriving community; it's a thriving community of small business owners, with an average family household income of eighty-three thousand dollars a year, Filipinos, against an average of right around for the United States of fifty-six thousand. So. I found that and I thought I would add it to this. And by the way, we're going to see this republished very shortly after they finished the studies from the more recent census. So I, I just thought that this was something really important to talk about and really important to kind of get into a little bit here. Because I'm going to go back and get into it with our government as I talk about taxes in a second. But um, if you want to see that chart, go look at, at Tom Ellsworth. That's my Twitter handle. Go find it in there. I tweeted that chart this morning. And so, as the bizDoc likes to say, words talk, numbers scream. And in this case, the numbers are screaming, and the Biden administration's wrong-headed move on what it's doing on mortgages, penalizing people with higher um, uh, credit scores versus giving benefit to people with lower credit scores, they are penalizing. All the people you just up, they're penalizing Filipino Americans, Chinese Americans, Taiwanese Americans. May I go on? You can see what's going on. So what they think they're doing, they're not. And when they want to make this into just this, this narrative of pitting races against each other, sorry dudes, the numbers don't numbers don't match. So words can spin, words can talk. These numbers scream truth. So <clears throat> what I also saw over the weekend is um, Return to Office is really starting to heat up. And what what's going on there is um, just like COVID truth is coming out, and there's a lot of things happening in that, and I don't want to get into that. Um, the truth on Return to Office is coming out. Now, some people have reached out and they texted me on some things, and I'm going to say I wasn't wrong, but I was sure incomplete in what I said. There are many Professions where you can be an independent expert and you could work remotely. I never said that no one can work remotely and there aren't jobs that may be hard to find, like, like um, you know, actuaries and life insurance. Great actuaries are hard to find. And but they they sit with stacks of numbers and do assessments on um, basically the product design of life insurance policies and annuities and things like that. You could have an actuary with, you know, number one, shortage of skills. Number two, sort of an independent think tank that you've, an independent contributor. So something like that would work. What I was talking about, what I said didn't work, is where... You try to get teams of people together, you lose teamwork, you lose collaboration, you lose your ability to be seen by people for them to understand that, hey, you've got great interpersonal skills, you could lead a team. Maybe you should be promoted to team lead or even manager. Well, things are starting to come out where people are talking about that, but they're also now talking about the ways where workers, and I hope it's not the value Valuetainment audience, but we had something that happened to us, as some of our companies, companies that we know about, where workers took advantage of it. Like, there's a company that discovered engineers actually were getting paid two jobs, and they were working at like half speed for two organizations. Don't tell me that the productivity was up. No, they were basically working two jobs until somebody figured it out, and then, They tell them, either quit that other job and give us a fair day, or as a matter of fact, never, never mind. Go work for the other job full time, you're fired. That was happening. Well, ClearLink, ClearLink company, CEO James Clark, he said that they ran a study and found out that there were many remote workers in their organizations that didn't open their laptops for a month. He asked the IT team that has security software on there, for people like CrowdStrike or Norton or something where you've got security software in there and remote management software. It's very common. It's not spyware. It's remote management so that they could get your printer working. They could correct something on your laptop. They could update it. They can make sure the antivirus is working. If the company's been under a threat, they can make sure your laptop's not there. So you have remote management software and also can tell, has the laptop been open lately? And so... HE POINTED, HE SAID, WE HAD PEOPLE QUIETLY QUIT ON US. HE SAID, THEY HAD ONE MONTH OF THE YEAR THAT THEY CHECKED AND THEY FOUND OUT THAT THERE WERE 30 PEOPLE THAT DIDN'T EVEN OPEN THEIR LAPTOPS. AND SO CLARK GOES AND HE PUTS THIS VIDEO OUT THERE AND THEN HE SAID SOMETHING I DISAGREED WITH. HE SAID THERE WERE PEOPLE THAT SOLD THE FAMILY a DOG IN ORDER TO RISE TO EXPECTATIONS AT WORK. AND I, yeah, I DON'T THINK THAT'S RIGHT, YOU KNOW. you know if you know, selling a pet or creating a hardship at home so you could work 80 hours in the office, that's kind of going the other way. The point is there's a bunch coming out on this return to work thing that says a lot of people that were working remotely were taking advantage of the system. Here's an example of a guy that had 30 people. Some of them were in important engineering jobs, didn't open their laptop for a month. Well, if if that was PBD's company or my company, you know what I'd be asking? I'd be saying, hey, guys, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's managing these people? Was there a Zoom meeting? How the hell did they do Zoom? Are they doing Zoom on their phone, walk around the backyard? What was going on? How are you not being sure about what these people are doing? So there's also a management thing. And for the CEO to complain about it, let me tell you, dude, the buck does stop with you because the accountability standards you have in your organization that go down to your VPs, your managers, and then the people on the front line, it starts with you. And if a month went by before there was somebody asking what's going on here, we haven't seen our engineers for a while, and people not even opening it, those are quiet quitters. The truth is, left unsupervised, humans tend to slack off a little bit. We need to be driven. That's why even the highest paid, most gifted athletes in the world benefit from a coach like Bill Belichick or John Wooden, you know, the great coaches that we've had. Phil Jackson, they benefit uh, because without a coach, we all tend to maybe round off the edges a little bit. So I'm seeing a lot of return to office stuff where there are some very good and practical policies for people with, that with, you know, precious skills that they are working remote, but not because they say, hey, you can't find a bunch of actuaries, so I get to work remote and I can do all these things. No, what they're saying is it's hard to find an actuary. We are here in... Houston and you're a great actuary in Denver. And rather than move you here, we can take advantage of of your expertise and we can do it this way. That's a positive decision. But this uh, return to work stuff, you know, so don't feel bad if you're being tough on your people. It's your company and you need the best and the brightest to come together and to work hard. So speaking of work, what happens when you work? When you work, you get paid. And once you get paid, then there's taxes. And there's a bunch of stuff coming out right now um, in terms of uh, taxes. Really interesting stuff. And they took a look at what happened last week as people paid their taxes and what they were expecting to come in based on um, the returns. Because remember, a lot of people have sent in the digital return like weeks ago. Well, last year was... Last week, on the 18th, um, was the deadline. I think it was Tuesday, and they gave us all a couple extra days because April 15th fell on a weekend this year. So, very interesting poll. Tax Day came and went, and they started asking people. 56 of America said that the amount they pay in taxes is more than my fair share. And that was up from 51% in 2019, just three years ago, People who said, I pay more than my fair share. Now, what's interesting, 66% of people that were surveyed in this, two out of three, felt that the wealthy don't pay their share. I'm about to show you that this is a talking point. And people have heard it long enough. You've heard the phrase, right? You say something to someone enough times, and they will start to believe it's true. And that's part of audience manipulation, citizenship manipulation, and it happens. The wealthy don't pay their fair share. We've heard that drum beating. People like Bernie who says the word billionaires in every speech he gives now. Billionaires, billionaires. By the way, he used to say millionaires and billionaires. Then he became a millionaire himself with several houses and and his wife and him have a, a net worth between I guess it's 5 to 6 million dollars or more. So he's done okay as a humble CONGRESSMAN AND SENATOR. HE'S DONE OKAY. WONDER HOW THAT WORKED. WONDER WHAT INFORMATION HE'S USING TRADING STOCKS OR SOMETHING. ANYWAY, ONE WAY OR ANOTHER, HE SURE PROFITED FROM A CAREER IN PUBLIC SERVICE. SO NOW HE JUST SAYS BILLIONAIRES, BILLIONAIRES, BILLIONAIRES. THAT NARRATIVE IS IN THE HEAD OF THESE PEOPLE THAT ARE SURVEYED BECAUSE HERE COME THE NUMBERS. 61% SAID, I would support raising taxes on people that make more of 400 grand. That sure sounds like a lot. Well, especially if you just heard the average uh, income in America was down, you know, $56,000. But they couldn't say why you support raising it. And they couldn't say, um, you know, um, anything about uh, the rationale for their feelings. It was just, well, they've heard it and that's how they felt. There's the example of how telling them enough times the wealthy don't pay their share has gotten into their head. But what constitutes the fair share? Ready for this? Here we go. According to the IRS, the top 1% of taxpayers, 1.5 million households in America, paid $722 billion in taxes. That was 42% of all the taxes paid. The top 1% paid 42% of all the taxes paid. Okay, you still think you don't tax the wealthy enough? Wow. By contrast, you go to the bottom 90% of taxpayers, the bottom 90%, they only paid a combined $450 billion in taxes, or just 2.63% of the total. That was the lowest percentage for the 90% in decades. Let me say that again. The bottom 90% paid only 26.3% of the total tax dollars, the lowest percentage of the total tax paid by that 90% in decades. In other words, they are taxed less than they have in decades, whereas the wealthy continue to be. So let's let's dive in the numbers. So that means the top 1% are paying more of the nation's taxes than the bottom um, 142 million people combined. So, well, wait a minute. Is it that the wealthy pay a larger amount because they earn the most money? Not exactly. In 2020, the top... 1% of taxpayers earned only 22% of all income. So here's all the income. They earned 22% of it, but they paid 42% of the income tax. So in other words, that's almost 44%. And if it was 44%, then they made 22% of the money and paid 44% of the taxes. The opposite's true for the bottom 90%. They earned more than half or 50% of the nation's income. So the bottom 90% earned 50% of the income and paid 26% of the taxes. So it hasn't always been this way. Look at the disparity. So every time you hear, you know, we got to tax the billionaires, we have to do this, no, go take a look at the truth. The top 1%, again, earns 22% of the income, pays 42% of the taxes, and the bottom 90% earned 50% of the income and paid 26% of the taxes. Look at the truth. Those are the numbers, but that had a, hasn't always been the case. Did you know in 1980, the taxes were more evenly shared? The bottom 90% made 68% of the dollars and paid 52% of the taxes. I'll say it again. In 1980, 90% of America earned 68% of the income, paid 52% of the taxes. And the top 1% only earned 9.6% of the nation's income and paid 17% of the taxes. So the taxes are becoming much more progressive. And people can say, well, it's because income disparity, because the income is running to the 1%. Well, that may be true, but they're also, the taxes they're paying. Or higher. So you could say we have an income disparity, but they are paying. And so the point, the wealthy have to pay their uh, fair share, the wealthy have to do this, the wealthy have to do that. You know what? The truth of it is, if you really look at all the numbers, is that the wealthy are paying an awful lot of their share of the, a, a very large percent of their share of the tax. So I think what you need to do is also take a look at what is happening. The IRS has dramatically changed from being the administrator of our taxes to doing something else. Do you know what is the largest program administered in the federal government? It's the IRS. And the programs that are aimed at um, schools, low-income families and children are administered by the IRS the child care tax credit, the earned income tax credit. Those two programs put $180 billion worth of benefits into the bottom 90%, and to be more exact, into the bottom 40%. So meaning, by the way, I'm going to get into something else in a minute, that there is a huge percent of Americans that pay no taxes, but they get a refund check for turning in a tax return that showed they paid no taxes because they got tax credit. So they received a refund check for the IRS. In other words, they're receiving money for programs through the IRS. Think about that. Now, we can debate all day long if these programs are good or bad, and I want to go take a look at them because I think many of them are really good programs that are helping people, and the reason they don't pay taxes is because they're below a certain threshold, and they could use some help. But since the mid-1990s, check this out. The tax credits have multiplied like rabbits. Here are the tax credits that the federal government will give you now. They will give you one for adoptions, for putting your kids in daycare. They'll give you a tax credit for putting your grandparents in senior care, for paying for college, for buying an electric car. Remember when you get $7,500 off the electric car? That's a tax credit. That's the IRS paying for part of your car. For putting solar panels on your roof, for buying health insurance, The IRS is now a super agency of social services. Did you know that? Now you do. The IRS is actually a super agency. So these responsibilities, I think, are beyond the capacity of a tax collection agency. No wonder it can't function. No wonder they want 86,000-some OFFICERS TO GO OUT AND SQUEEZE PEOPLE EVEN HARDER ON TAXES. IF THE CONGRESS BELIEVES THESE BENEFITS ARE IMPORTANT FOR FAMILIES, ANOTHER AGENCY SHOULD BE PROVIDING THEM THROUGH A SPENDING PROGRAM, NOT THROUGH THE TAX CODE. AND THEY SHOULD SIMPLIFY THE TAX CODE, MAYBE WORK IT TO A FLAT TAX. SO YOU KNOW WHAT THE RESULT OF THIS? This is called unintended consequences. Just like having a work-from-home policy had the unintended consequences of some of your engineers that actually didn't have the same standards for ethics and integrity, took two jobs and were doing software coding for two companies, paying them $80,000 each. So they were sitting there at home with two laptops, not operating at full peak, The unintended consequence of work from home is people that didn't have high integrity standards ripped off companies. And as we saw from that one company where the CEO came out and said, and our IT people went out and sensed the laptops and a bunch of them were not even open for a month. Those are called unintended consequences of work from home. You want to see the unintended consequences of what's the IRS? The number of taxpayers that pay no taxes is at a record high. In pre-pandemic, like 2000, I think 2019 it was, Kellyanne? Yes. 34% of taxpayers, 54 million households, paid no income taxes because of the tax credits. And many of them actually got a check from the government, even though they had a zero tax owed, because these are the tax credits. And again, I'm saying if these are necessary, and tax credits for adopting so that the pressure is not on the foster care... System, I think that's good. I think putting your kids in daycare, that's a good credit so people can work as single parents. I think that's a good credit. Putting grandparents in senior care, paying for college, I think these are good credits or things are good. But shouldn't they be administered by a government agency on spending? Now, if you think you heard the uh, BizDoc just say, I'm in favor of expanding um, government agencies, no, I am not. But Health and Human Services, HAS, and um, the, uh, the Department of Education, which I think should be abolished in the first place, there are agencies that are out there. That sh- why aren't they providing these? Why are these coming through the tax code? Why don't we simplify the tax code and move these, these credits to programs on a needs-based? So, the rhetoric of the wealthy don't pay their fair share, guess what? Numbers talk excuse me, words talk, words spin, numbers scream. Look at the numbers, they're screaming here. The wealthy, there may be an income inequality in this nation that's getting higher, but there certainly is a, also, is a massive tax burden inequality that's happening. You may say, well, these people can afford it, that's what it's gonna be. Yeah, but they're not getting off scot-free, and they're not paying no taxes. They're paying the vast majority of the taxes to pay for battleships, national parks, and a lot of other things, such as, oh, putting your kids in daycare. So, if they say it enough times and you start believing, tax the wealthy, tax the wealthy, just remember all those entrepreneurs out there that are building companies, and that's where jobs come from. That is the job engine of this nation. And let's look at the truth of what the wealthy are paying, and then let's... Let's take a look at that and see maybe if there's not some room to kind of calibrate our understanding and share with other people. You may not like it, and you may not like how many billionaires that there are out there, but you can't say that they, uh, they, they, they didn't get there selling drugs. They got their building companies. So, I think I got a text here from you. It yep. says we have a couple questions.
1: We do. Who two, do we got? Two of them are kind of the same, so I'm gonna put them both together. Okay. Um, uh, Fishing Pete started it. Question, are we well on our way into a recession? If so, how bad or how long will it be? And then Janice from Detroit, Michigan, followed up and said she has a small business. Uh, I've heard you talk a lot about the recession today, and I've heard Pat say before on the podcast that sometimes the recession can be a blessing in disguise. We talked about
0: that PBD podcast last week.
1: Yep. So what should I be doing to prepare?
0: Wow. So the first question for the recession, how long is it going to be? Well, um, there are you could take a bunch of economists, lay them end to end, and they're not going to reach a conclusion on this um, that lines up perfectly. Uh, I think Harry Truman said that. I could take all my economists, lay them end to end, I still wouldn't, get a con- they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. Mm-hmm. So I believe that we are stepping into a cre- um, recessionary um, environment right now. And I think we're going to see this um, you see what's going on with um, unemployment. I tweeted out today Meta has actually laid off 20, it's Facebook, laid off 25% of their workforce. Um, Twitter is a different example. Elon Musk bought Twitter and said that it doesn't take all these people to run a text messaging uh, <clears throat> system at scale on a global basis. And um, they've laid off 80% of the people, laid off or took a package and left Twitter. So let's set that aside. But you've got Meta laying off that many. And the layoffs are con- that's just tech. And we've talked a lot on the PBD podcast about where the layoffs are coming. So I believe we're stepping into a recessionary time. And when people's spending starts dropping, interest rates are high, inflation starts um is, remains high. It's not plummeting. And unemployment is going to start ticking up and the layoffs are driving unemployment. That is all a recessionary environment is starting. And I believe we're going to be probably in a two-quarter recession. Is it third and fourth quarter? Is it fourth quarter, first quarter? Don't know. But I think that's what I'm looking at. Now, to the follow-up question of the individual, she said, "Where's she say?
1: Detroit, Michigan.
0: Detroit, Michigan. So she's up in a tough market and a recession is coming, but she's asking a great question. So the answer is, right now, you have a bunch of people right now that are going to be in town for the Sales Leadership Summit from Valuetainment. So what are they doing? They're investing in training and education. And I think right now, don't go into debt to do it, but if you can afford to take dollars and to invest in training for your sales force or invest a little more in product or step up and try to be opportunistic, you can stick with your customers. So in other words, you could pull in and stick with your customers and try to write it out and get on the phone with your customers saying, oh, it's tough for us too. Or maybe you could try to drive out, look out. So pull in or drive out. And I recommend driving out, but don't do it with debt and foolish decisions. Look for opportunities. Now is the time to look for opportunities. Look for, I hate to say it, look for weaknesses in your competitors. Look for people that maybe aren't serving their folks and maybe now is the exact time to go win a customer, showing them that in the recession, you're all in this together and you can give them a great product at a great price or a great service at a great price. And I would work on that. I would also take time to educate the whole team through popular... Um, uh, you know, media. And here's a great source for you. We happen to really like, you know, um, the book, you know, Unreasonable Hospitality, you know, which is just amazing book talking about putting that little extra into every customer relationship. And I think now is the time to do that. And so I would be looking for opportunities to do that. So don't pull in and hide and, and get into a cycle of only talking to customers or suppliers, say how bad it is. Be the voice that says, when this ends, I'm going to be better. And make that your mantra. Look for the next customer. Read books together with your team to educate yourself. Think about how you could do something a little bit better, even if you don't have all the budget to do it. And come out on the other side better than you came in. Because if you're in the weight room just lifting weights, you're going to be stronger. You're going to be stronger. So that's a great question. I appreciated it. You have any other questions?
1: Um, um, Matthias Petters uh, said, "Hello, Biz. I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, what this recession could look like for emerging markets like South America and Asia? And congrats on the podcast."
0: Yeah. So what do I think about those? Yeah. Um, I think those those opportunities are still tremendous. And the, the recession can affect, you know, global markets just like the U.S. markets. So I think there's opportunities in those markets for U.S. companies. And if you're in one of those, um, uh, one of those countries where things are a little bit tougher now, uh, I, I think it's you. You, you got to tough it out, but you can tough it out in a, in a couple ways. And even if the one thing that happens is you change the attitude and the mindset. Patrick likes to talk about that it's hard for people to change, but people can come up and say, hey, I don't recognize you. And it's not because your business you know, doubled during a recession. That may not be possible. But maybe with inflation recession, that the attitude that you have in your business, and they say, I don't even recognize you. And they say, yeah, during this recession, during these tough times, we went out and it was time for us to drive forward. And so I appreciate the questions. And uh, now again, it's sort of the same answer I I gave. It's like, don't pull in, push out. You know, push out against things trying to keep you in a mindset that's not exceptional. Because you can keep your mindset regardless of the economy. And a mindset is a terrible thing to waste. So that's it this week. Thank you very much for watching the BizDoc podcast. You can if you watched it live, thank you for being here with us. 1130 East Coast every Monday morning, 830 Pacific Time. Those, those are U.S. time zones. This is and available from Spotify and all of the wonderful places that are syndicated through Spotify Anchor. And you find it on your favorite podcast app. So thank you very much. Find me on Twitter, Tom Ellsworth ask questions. I get to as many as I can. And as I like to say, my name is Tom Ellsworth, the BizDoc, and I hope I left you better than I found you.